Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You that Your wounds have paid our ransom. God, that You have provided a way of salvation for us. Not through any work or merit of our own, but solely by grace through faith in Christ so that none of us have any reason to boast. We thank You that with that grace comes the Holy Spirit. And we ask that Your Spirit now would equip us to understand Your words, Jesus' words to us. And that we would listen and hear His message for us in our text tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I'm, uh, I'm looking around and I'm noticing that there are some people who aren't here tonight. And, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of hoping that the people that aren't here aren't here because they're out of town or they're sick or something else has happened and not the fact that they were raptured yesterday at 6 o'clock. Uh, for those of you who don't know about this, a guy named Harold Camping, a preacher or pastor or something, radio host, out in California predicted that the rapture would occur Saturday, May 21st, yesterday at 6 p.m. And I think it's safe to say that it didn't happen. And while we can certainly laugh and joke about these people who, who crop up, who pop up around the world and predict that the end of the world is coming, even give it a time and a place, I think we can especially laugh when there's people that do it multiple times. Like Harold Camping back in 1994. He, he said that it was coming and then it didn't come. And so he said, oh, there was some sort of mathematical error. But this time, I'm right. Obviously, he wasn't right. This week, Saturday, yesterday, it was, it was Harold Camping. But next week, next year, next month, it, it might be someone like the third eagle of the apocalypse. These, these people who crop up and just predict that the end of the world is coming. And while certainly they get some, some pretty big things really wrong, there are some things they get right. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that Judgment Day is going to come. And we know that we as His followers, have been entrusted with that message. We need to go out and share it and say He's coming back. We need to get ready for the fact that He's coming back, that we're all going to be held to account for our sin. Camping's followers, they may have been misled, but, but they did do some things right. They, they gave sacrificially. They shared the message without relenting. And one thing that they did extremely well is pursued a radical holiness in light of the times. You see, think about it. As yesterday got closer and closer and closer for them, I imagine that they became more and more and more and more concerned about sin in their lives and sin in their heart because they thought He was coming yesterday and they wanted to be ready. But most of us, 
probably approached yesterday just like we approach any other day, with a, a carefree attitude, almost a prideful assumption that we're going to get another day. You see, we don't think that Jesus is coming back today or tomorrow or this week or next month or next year. We live like He's not coming back anytime soon. And in this way, we get it just as wrong as they got it. See, because Jesus said in the Gospel, He said, I'm coming like a thief in the night. And what He meant is, I'm coming at a time when nobody's going to expect it. And He told us that. And He said it in that way so that we would live as if He could come back at any moment. As if He could come back right now. And because of this, because of that reality, the fact that He could come at any moment, and He said He's coming soon, we should live like that's the case. We should share that message with people. And we should pursue holiness in light of that. I think one thing that they probably would have been much more concerned about than us is the kind of inward sin we talked about two weeks ago with anger. See, because we, we like we, we talked about, have the attitude that if no one can see it, it's not that bad. But they thought that the person who could see it was coming back yesterday. And so they cared a whole lot more about it than we do. We saw with anger that Jesus cared about the heart. Even, even when anger was unexpressed, He cared about it. And He wanted us to root it out of our lives. And tonight, we're going to see a very similar thing in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to see that He takes the same logic, the same concept, and applies it to lust. And so that's what we're going to study tonight together. And the main point, the main point of tonight's text is very similar to what it was two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, it was that God cares about the heart, and anger represents a heart guilty of murder. Tonight, it's still that God cares about the heart, and that lust, re- lust represents a heart which is guilty of adultery. Of adultery. <laughs> so let's read the text. We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of the rows, and you'll find tonight's passage in those Bibles on page 810. The Gospel of Matthew is the, the first book in the New Testament. We're going to be reading from the fifth chapter, which is kind of right at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. So this is Jesus speaking to us. This is what he says, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So just like last week, or two weeks ago, the passage on anger, Jesus begins by saying, you've heard that it was said. And then he immediately quotes the Old Testament. He quotes the seventh commandment. Last, two weeks ago, it was the sixth commandment. Tonight, it's the seventh commandment. Exodus 20.14, where we find the Ten Commandments. The seventh is, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is quoting that exactly. 
And at its most basic level, uh, most boiled down basic meaning of the, the seventh commandment is we're not supposed to have sex outside of the bounds of the marital relationship, outside the bounds of a marital covenant between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that is adultery. And so before we move on to to talk about how Jesus says we should understand the seventh commandment, let's ask you a question. What's the big deal about adultery? Why does... Why does God care so much about it? Why does Jesus take time out of the Sermon on the Mount to talk about lust and adultery? Well, there's probably more than than two reasons, certainly. But I think that the two biggest reasons are these. The first is that adultery breaks, it, it breaks the marital covenant between a husband and a wife. And when these covenants are broken... It's not as simple as as two people sitting down at a table signing a document that's been prepared by a bunch of lawyers. When people commit adultery, when they break that covenant, they're destroying something that God said at the very beginning was good. In Genesis, we see God creating the institution of marriage. He sees that it's not good for man to be alone, and so he gives him a woman. He gives him a wife. And he says, this is good. And when we go against that covenant, when we go against that covenant that a man and a woman has made before God, we're just demolishing something that He has ordained as good. And when these covenants are broken, I think all of us, maybe all of us in this room, sadly can say that when these covenants are broken, families are destroyed. Lives are ruined. And they affect everyone. The second reason is, is, is fairly similar, but a little different. And that's that when adultery happens, when this covenant is broken, the one relationship that God has ordained to represent His relationship with His people is broken. See, I think that a lot of times we read, Genesis, or we read Ephesians 5 where Paul kind of lays down the stipulations for marriage. And he says there that marriage symbolizes Christ's relationship with the church. We read that and we think Paul's just doing something incredibly new. He's doing this amazing new thing that nobody had ever done before and tying this relationship to God's relationship with us. But Paul isn't doing anything new. He's, he's picking up on an entire stream from the Old Testament, a whole theme of where God's relationship with His people is talked about in terms of a husband with a wife. So whenever the Israelites broke their covenant with God, He came and He accused them of adultery. He says, you've gone after other gods. You've cheated on Me with other gods and other people, and you're guilty of adultery. And when husbands or wives are unfaithful, when they commit adultery, they're they're preaching a false gospel to the world. They're saying that what he said this should symbolize, it doesn't symbolize. It symbolizes something different. And they distort the gospel. And so adultery, the reason why it's such a big deal, the reason why God cares about it so much is because it not only just flippantly destroys this relationship which God has said from the beginning is good, but it also distorts the message of the Gospel to a dying world. And so this is why Jesus 
teaches us in our text tonight. This is why he, he spends the time to talk to us about marital faithfulness and the importance of not giving in to lust. And he returns us to the true intent of the Old Testament law, to the true intent of the seventh commandment. You see this in verse 28. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is just like he did in the last passage, and he's going to do this in the next four passages we're going to cover in Matthew. He, he, he quotes something. He says, you've heard this said, but I say to you. And he, he says this in the most emphatic way he can. He's saying, I myself am saying this thing. You need to listen to me. The Old Testament said this. The Ten Commandments say this. But I'm saying this. And he does that to draw attention to what he's saying because he wants the people to listen. So let's notice a couple things in this verse. The first thing is he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Everyone. So this isn't just married people. The, the focus is on adultery. It's, it's, the focus is on fidelity in the marital relationship. But that doesn't mean it just applies to married people. And I think we can see this for a couple reasons. I mean, you can lust after a married man or a married woman. You can be single and still lust after someone who's married. And when you do that, you make yourself and you make them out to be an adulterer. One of the other reasons uh, comes out of a John Piper sermon. Uh, the, the sermon title is, It is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. And if you have a pulse and you haven't listened to that sermon, you need to listen to that sermon. And what he says is that by lusting after someone else, by, by dwelling on them in that way, we perpetuate their sin. Think about it. If, if we look at images on the computer, or we look at images in a magazine, or we, we watch a movie, or we look at someone who's dressed inappropriately and we lust after them, we're saying, keep doing what you're doing. I like it. And we give them cause to stay in that lifestyle. And the thing that we need to remember is that that person is somebody's wife, somebody's mom, somebody's daughter, somebody's granddaughter, somebody's sister. Out there somewhere is probably someone who's praying for that person praying that they change their lifestyle, and when we lust after them, we're giving them reason to stay in it. We're giving them reason not to change their life. And when we lust, whether we're married or unmarried, we divide our heart. We adulterate our heart between us and God. We say that the, the feelings we have, the cravings we have are more important than the things of God. And so it doesn't matter whether we're married or not. This applies to us. I think a second implication of, of the fact that Jesus says everyone is that this doesn't just apply to men. I think a lot of times when we talk about lust, men are the focus. And, and we should be. I mean, just to be honest, we struggle with this more than women do. It's a fact. But... That doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to women. Studies have shown that women have become increasingly more and more enslaved to things like internet pornography. A couple of years ago, there were hardly any women who went to counselors for this. And now there's a whole lot more. 
And so some women do struggle with the same kinds of physical lusts that men do. But I think there's also another kind of lust. And some men struggle with this, and some women struggle with this. And this is a a type of romantic or emotional lust. I think this is where most Christian women may struggle. And this is when things like movies or romance novels, even Christian romance novels, cause women to lust after and desire some emotional or romantic, idealized environment. And so they stop feeling the way they should about their husband, the man that God has given them, and they they long for something else. Some guy who's going to come into their life and sweep them off their feet and ride on a horse and do dishes and do laundry while singing songs of his love for her. And this kind of struggle can be just as powerful and just as damaging as the physical lust that most men face. The point here, when Jesus uses this word, the point is that everybody, it doesn't matter how old we are or how young we are, it doesn't matter whether we're married or whether we're unmarried or whether we're a man or a woman, it doesn't matter who we are, we face the temptation to lust and so we need to listen to what Jesus says to us in His Word. Another phrase that that is really important that we need to understand is uh, this phrase, lustful intent. Jesus says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I really like the fact that the ESV uses the word intent here. They almost perfectly capture what it is that Jesus is trying to say to us. You see, he's not talking about a, a fleeting glance. He's not talking about what happens in our minds when we see something. See, we walk around and we see things. We see a baseball. We see a car. We see somebody who's dressed inappropriately. And our brain sees those things and then we process those images. We do the same thing with sounds. And it's inevitable in our society that we're going to see things that we shouldn't see. Sex and immodesty is all around us, even in church. And just to kind of take a little side trail here, Uh, when we go places, whether it's to work or school or church, wherever we go, we need to think about what we put on, men and women both, about what we put on and how we wear something and whether or not it's going to cause somebody, one of our brothers or sisters in Christ or, or a complete stranger, whether it's going to cause them to stumble. We need to love each other in that and think about those things when we prepare to go out in public. Another thing we should think about is, is the, the words that we say. I can't tell you how many contexts I've been in where I've heard married people talk about sex in a very unhelpful way in front of unmarried people. When I was single, that was really, really bad for me. And so, think about what you wear. Think about what you say. Because people can't not see it. They can't not hear it. And so... We can't stop that from happening. We can't stop from processing what we hear and what we see. But we can control what happens next. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's he's speaking out against these lingering thoughts where we begin to dwell on things, where we begin to think about and consider maybe even how we can act on something. That's what he means by lustful intent. It means having the intention 
of carrying some thought or something we've seen into fruition. So when we get to that point that we're guilty of what he says we're guilty of, when we've done that, when we've, when we've crossed that line between just seeing something and starting to dwell on it and think about how we can act on it, when we've done that, Jesus says that it's just as bad as if we've openly and publicly had sex with a woman other than our wife. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's just as bad, just like with anger, how it's just as bad as if we'd killed somebody. He's saying that lust, whether it, it is acted out or not, is just as bad as, as cheating on our spouse in a very physical way. But, again, just like with anger, we don't view it this bad. We don't view it with the same hatred that Jesus does. And that's because we think that if it remains inside, that it's not as bad. Because we care more about our outward reputation than we care about honoring our spouse or honoring God in the way that we live. And so when we lust, we're taking thoughts and emotions and feelings which should only belong to our wife. And we're enslaving ourselves to someone else or something else. And that causes us to be divided. It causes us to be divided between this thing or this image and the person that we're supposed to be one with. And when that happens, it's just as bad if we had had physical intercourse with them. That's what Jesus says. This is how seriously we should view lust. This is why Jesus takes the time to talk to us about it. And the question for us is, how do we respond? How do we respond to the gravity with which Jesus tells us about lust and adultery? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us our application in verses 29 through 30. I might not call it practical application, but this is what he says. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your member, mem- members than that your whole body go into hell. So the first and most obvious question all of us probably ask when we come to a text like this is, should we take Jesus literally? Should all of us start carrying around cleavers and bone saws ready to lop off limbs when when sin arises? Origen, this this third century theologian, he, he was one of the first guys to try to put together a systematic theology of the Christian faith. And he wrote commentaries on on a whole lot of books of the Bible, including Matthew. He was a guy who sought to take Jesus literally on some of the things he said in Matthew. And because of that, he castrated himself to try to obey what Jesus says in this text. But the problem, thankfully, with this kind of logic is something that I'd venture to guess that Origen found out. And that's that it doesn't matter how many limbs we cut off. It doesn't matter what body parts we cut off. The root of sin is in our heart. And that's not going to go away until we die. And so I think that 
Jesus is, is being hyperbolic here. He's exaggerating to make a point. He's exaggerating so that we see how important it is that we fight against lust. And he talks about the, the eye and the hand because the, these are the objects that are probably most closely connected with lust. He picks the right eye and the right hand because the, the right side in the ancient world was viewed as the most important, the, the strongest. And so people would be a lot less willing to lose the right side of something than something else. He picks the eye. I think it's pretty simple because it's, it's what sees the object of lust. It's what processes the image. And the hand could serve a number of different functions. The first is that a lot of times the hand symbolized theft. So uh, that, that in lust, what you're actually doing is you're, you're taking something that isn't yours. You're taking someone else's husband or someone else's wife. Uh, some people think that the hand is, is used euphemistically for uh, the penis. And so that's why uh, he used hand. Other people think that hand is used because it's the, the part of the body that would most logically carry out the lustful thought in masturbation. Should be two words I never thought I'd say in church. But it, it, it doesn't matter exactly what the symbolism is between the eye and the hand. It doesn't matter exactly why Jesus is using those words. See, what he's saying is that we need to have this kind of fervor in our pursuit of sin. See, if one of us went to the doctor and the doctor said, you have an infection in your arm. And if you don't cut it off, it's going to spread to the rest of your body and you're going to die. All of us, no matter how important our arm was to us, would make the choice to lose it to live. Every single person. And we should treat sin with this kind of relentlessness, with this kind of zeal of getting it out of our lives, no matter what the cost is to us. This is a place where, where Jesus and, and John Owen sound very, very similar. Owen says in his book, The Mortification of Sin, he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And Jesus is saying that even if you have to start lopping off body parts, do it to save yourself from the penalty of sin. Practically, uh, Piper gives us a really helpful way to fight lust. And if you, don't, if you don't know this, if you haven't heard this before, I would encourage you to write it down. Whether you struggle with lust or not, if you struggle with sin at all, which is every one of us, this can be a very helpful tool, so I encourage you to pay attention and maybe write it down. The tool is an acronym for the word anthem. Uh, the A stands for avoid. Essentially what it means is that don't put yourself in places that you know are going to, to cause you to sin. Don't, don't let yourself be in circumstances or see things or be in a place that you know is going to give rise to temptation. And so, if you know you've got to go to a place that is going to tempt you to sin, you, just, you have to do it, you can't get around it, take someone with you. Take someone with you who, who knows that that place is going to cause you to stumble. If the computer is an avenue of sin for you, don't be on the computer by yourself. 
If you have to, absolutely have to be on the computer by yourself, get some sort of software that can hold you accountable and prevent you from going places on the internet that you know you shouldn't. And just a, a side note here, I know that I, I've heard before that the reason why people don't have this kind of software is because of its cost. And if that's you, come talk to me. We'll see if we can work something out. Because I think that this is very important. So the A's avoid, the, the N in anthem is no. Means that we need to say no to every lustful thought within five seconds. If it gets much past that, if this goes back to the, the lustful intent and the processing of images, if we dwell on things much longer than five seconds, it's going to take us down. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so we need to say no to lust. We need to say no to sin with the authority that Christ gives us in the Gospel. So avoid. No. The, the T is turn. And what he means here is we need to turn our focus. We need to, to shift our mind away from lust, away from sin, and on to something that can hold our attention. You see, if, if I just think, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust. Don't think about that, don't think about that, don't think about that, don't think about that. I'm just going to keep thinking about it. I'm not going to get it out of my mind. And so what we need to do is we need to fill our mind with something else. And that something else should be Christ. You see, if I'm dwelling on, if I'm meditating on, if I'm praising God for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, for the forgiveness and redemption I have in the Gospel, it's going to be really, really hard for me to think about lust. So we avoid. We say no. We turn. The H is hold. And this is where it really matters. See, if we do the first three and then we just give up, we're going to lose. We have to hold our gaze, hold our attention, fix our eyes on Christ until the temptation passes. This may be two minutes. This may be five minutes. This may be an hour. However long it takes, we need to keep dwelling on Christ until we feel like we are free from this temptation. The E stands for enjoy. And what this means is that we need to cultivate our enjoyment of Christ. If Christ isn't satisfying for us, if we don't view Him as the object from which we can get the most joy, sin like lust and other competing desires are going to consistently take us down. If we don't have something else that can, that can satisfy us that we know is more satisfying than that, we're not going to beat it. And if you have trouble with this, like most of us probably do, an easy way to fix that is by reading and praying the Psalms. It doesn't take long in the Psalms to get to a place where they just continually give God glory for His satisfaction and the joy that can be found in Him. In Psalm 90, Moses says this. He says, Satisfy us in the morning with Your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. In Psalm 16, David says to God, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David and Moses, these are voices of experience. They know what it's like to fight sin and have victory. They know what it's like to fight sin and lose. And their prayers should be our prayers. 
If, if we want to have victory over sin, we need to taste what they have tasted and we need to savor what they have savored. We need to know what it means for God to have pleasures at His right hand forevermore. And we need to seek our satisfaction in those things and not in these other things. Avoid, no, turn, hold, enjoy. The last one, M, stands for move. It's the easiest one. It means do something else. Don't just keep yourself idle in the situation in which the temptation came up. Go and do something else. If you're by yourself, go to where people are. If you you can't go to where people are, call somebody and say, I'm struggling with this. Will you pray with me? If you're awake and your spouse is in bed, go to bed. The point is do something else. Go for a run. Read the Bible. Read a phone book. Just do something other than sitting there and waiting for lust to creep back into your mind. So it's anthem, avoid, no, turn, hold, enjoy, and move. This is just one little helpful tool which we can use to have some more victory over sin in this life. Fighting sin could be seen as kind of a negative response. When things come up, this is what we do. There's also a positive response we can take against lust in our life. And so the opposite of of lust and adultery would be purity. This is the kind of purity that we saw in the Beatitudes. This this sole focus on the things of God. And this is what I think Jesus is talking about when He hints about our, our whole body being thrown into hell. He's saying we need to have our core, our focus, all that we are focused on something other than these things which are going to divide our minds and divide our emotions and divide our affections. See, we need to be devoted not only to Christ, but we also need to be committed and faithful to our spouse or for the single people, our future spouse. Every part of us, especially our hearts and our minds need to be committed to Christ and committed to our spouse. I think there's three, three ways. I mean, there's a lot more than three ways, but there's three ways we can do that. Really simple. The first is pray together. Men and women who are married need to be praying together. Share each other's struggles. Be wise about it, but share with your wife. Share with your husband what you're struggling with and pray for each other. Second thing is really easy, or should be, and that's talk. Talk to your spouse. Talk to them about, you know, maybe these areas that you need to avoid. Tell your spouse, you know, I I probably need to go to bed with you every night, because if I don't, I'm going to be tempted. Be honest with each other about the, the lust that you face in your life. The third thing is protect. And And I think that that the area of lust and pornography, more than possibly any other thing that the church is facing right now, has the potential to to ruin lives, ruin churches, ruin everything. And so we as men, we as women, need to be protecting ourselves from this. We need to keep from being in situations where, you know, bad things can happen. Uh, A professor in school once told me, he said... Uh, if, if anybody ever makes the charge of infidelity against a pastor, he said it doesn't really matter if it's true. 
He said, if, if there's anyone that would believe that it's true, then the ministry's over. And that's how we should feel about our marriages. That we need to be so far above reproach that if somebody came to our wives or came to our husbands and said, he did this, they'd say, no way. I know that my husband wouldn't let himself be in a situation for that to happen. We need to do these things for personal reasons. So I don't know about you, but I don't want my whole body to be thrown into hell. That's what Jesus warns us against. But we also need to do this for, for corporate reasons. Because of our commitment to society, because of our commitment to the world, we need to do these things so that our marriages and our lives can represent the Gospel well. You see, as we as men and women, as we set aside these lustful desires, and we live for the good of the Gospel, and we live for the good of our marriages, we are representing this relationship which God created for this purpose to the world. See, the author of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before Him, Christ endured the cross. He despised its shame. Christ left heaven. He came down here. He conquered every single temptation that He faced. And He did it because He knew that the joy, He knew that the satisfaction that was to be found in obedience to His Father's will was worth more than anything else that could compete for it. He knew that it was far more valuable than anything else he could ever imagine. And for those of us tonight who are in Christ, who have experienced the the forgiveness and the redemption that's to be found by grace through faith in His name, we know that He didn't just purchase our freedom. He didn't just pay the penalty that we deserve, but that He also, through His life, death, and resurrection, purchased a way for us to fight sin, a way for us to have victory over sin like lust and anger and other things that He's going to talk about to us in His Word. So because, not because of us, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done, we can have victory over lust. We can say no and mean it and win. Maybe you're here tonight and this isn't you. You don't have a relationship with Christ. You need to realize that Jesus' words to us are real. These aren't just empty words and phrases written in a book over 2,000 years old, but these are actual words that the Son of God spoke to people like you and like me. And hell is real. And even though Harold Camping got the dating wrong, he was right. Jesus is coming back. Judgment Day is coming, in which we're going to have to stand before God and give an account of our sin. But the grace of the Gospel is that we don't have to start cutting off body parts. We don't have to start cutting off our arm or gouging at our eye because of what Christ has done for us in the Gospel. He purchased our freedom from the reality of hell. So we don't have to be afraid that our whole body will be thrown into hell. Because we know that He bore the penalty that we deserve. 
so if you're here tonight and you don't understand what that means, or you haven't experienced that, I'd encourage you, just, just please talk to me or, or talk to someone else here tonight before you leave. Jesus' words to us in this text are that God cares about the heart. He cares about the inward heart condition that lies behind the outward action. And lust, no matter how bad it is, no matter how often it is, no matter how frequent it is, lust represents a heart which is guilty of adultery. But, thankfully, we have His grace which equips us to fight lust and and equips us to live out pure marriages where we're committed to our spouse in a way that represents the gospel before a dying world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you that they are just as relevant and just as applicable today as they were when you spoke them. God, and we ask that you would use your Spirit to drive them deep into our hearts. That we would fight sin like lust with the same passion that you call us to in this passage. That our marriages, that our lives, that our relationships would be forever changed because of what you said to us. And that we would live knowing that any satisfaction that comes from lust or other sinful desires pale in comparison to the joy and the satisfaction that's to be found in Christ. That we would long for that. That we would crave that and not something empty. And that as we do that, that others would see in us and see in our lives and see in our marriages the truth of the Gospel. And that more people would find the salvation that frees them from having their whole body thrown into hell. We thank You for the Gospel. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.